1: Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of the Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Hello, hello! Thanks so much for joining me today. And thank you for joining me for a brand new year of the Karma You podcast. I took a bit of a break for the end of 2021, I was moving house and it was kind of tricky recording podcasts while staying in different houses with variable internet and not being able to always get a quiet space to do it, but I am hoping now I'm settled in my new place that it's going to be more consistent for the rest of the year and we're starting with a brilliant episode. I have wanted to speak to Johan Hari for ages. I have DM'd him on several occasions over the years since he wrote his you know book before, the most recent one that he's written called Lost Connections, which many of you may have read. Um, trying to get him in, but he was always writing a book, always quite busy. And he's got this new book out called Stolen Focus, which is absolutely fascinating, I have to say. And I was able to speak to him as he was in the promo for this book. So it's actually quite hard to find someone who who doesn't struggle with this, who doesn't struggle with their attention span, their focus, their ability to get the things done that they need to get done. There are so many distractions and he really talks about this in the podcast and also in great depth in his book about how our focus has actually been stolen. It's not a personal failing. If you're struggling to focus or concentrate, it's not a sign that you're not trying hard enough, more than likely, it's due to a lot of these different factors that are outside of our control, that aren't our fault. And so we we dig into this, how our, our focus has been stolen and the reasons that it is an issue for us. I mean, you can probably think about in your own life, what kind of issues it causes you when you continually check your phone or your emails or get distracted or can't focus or can't do the sort of deep work that you want and need to do we talk about how sleep, stress and anxiety all feed into our inability to focus and how these things are massively linked. So yeah, if you're struggling with anxiety, chances are you do struggle to focus. I think this is, it's almost like a quality of anxiety can sometimes be that we're not very present. And if we're not present, we're not, I I have the saying, you know, we're not at the controls of our mind. And if we're not at the controls of our mind, anything can come in any negative thoughts or worries or our our mind can just seem to be hijacked by thinking about things in a very negative way. And it really is connected. All of this is connected. So I know you're gonna find this really helpful. And he also talks to us about the personal and structural changes that need to take place in order for us to change. Because yes, there are some things that we can do at an individual level. And Johan also goes into the structural changes that probably need to happen and I really hope do happen over the next few years so that our attention isn't getting stolen any longer. And yeah, he has so much to share about this, including his own intriguing (laughs) sort of life hack for using his phone less. So I'm a massive fan of Johan. I've loved his books and it was such a joy to get to speak to him. He's a brilliant storyteller And when you read his book, you'll you'll experience all of his different stories. And he interviewed around 200 people for this book. And it just adds so much richness to the points that he's making. And he shares a lot of stories in this podcast as well. So if you're struggling with your focus, if you're struggling with anxiety, chances are you might have what is known as high functioning anxiety. And I've created a resource specifically for those of us with high functioning anxiety. So in case you're not aware, high-functioning anxiety is where you might appear fine on the outside. Other people might think of you as a successful person, you've got a job, you've got a you know, successful home life, but actually inside, you feel like you're struggling. It might be that you put loads of pressure on yourself, you find it hard to switch off, you strive for perfection and never feel good enough, or you feel very overwhelmed by all of the things that you're juggling. So I've made this workbook specifically for you, if you're struggling with that sort of thing, you can download it at karma-u.com forward slash workbook. And this workbook helps you to discover the number one thing that's holding you back and the most important step that you can take to overcome it. So it's really taking you through a life coaching exercise Helping you to coach yourself in this area to make a shift in one specific area of your life. So it's going to help you to get to know yourself and move forwards with what it is that you're struggling with, whatever that might be. So you can download it for free at karma you.com forward slash workbook. So let's get into the interview with Johan Hari. Cool. So welcome, Johan. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
0: I am over-caffeinated and underslept, but cheerful and very happy to be with you. Hooray. <laughs> That's awesome. I also have a um, slightly weird thing in my office where the, the thermostat, the little heating thing broke. So I can, it, it can only be on maximum intensity. So I can either be unbelievably cold or boiling hot. So I feel like I'm in one of those fancy spas, you know, where they like <laughs> throw ice on you and then hurl you into a sauna. That's basically the experience of being in my, in my office the last few days, but someone is coming to fix it apparently.
1: Good. Good to hear. Good to hear. So, um, yeah, I have just read your book, Stolen Focus. Congratulations. It is amazing. And there's so much in there, so much research. So, so many just light bulbs went off in my head when I was reading it. So congratulations on that.
0: Oh, I'm so so glad to hear that. Thank you.
1: Can you, can you share a bit about what prompted you to write this book and a bit about what's what it's about?
0: Yeah, for a long time, I had this sense that something was going really wrong with our ability to focus and pay attention. I felt like I could see it around me. You know, I would meet up with people um, and they would they would say, I'm really struggling to pay attention and focus. And I would see these kind of small studies. You know, one study suggested uh, well, one study found that the average American college student now focuses on any one task for just 65 seconds In fact, the median amount of time they focused on anything was 19 seconds. A different study found that the average office worker now only focuses on any one thing for three minutes. I kind of thought, God, what is life like if your life is dissolving into like a hailstorm of three minute little pellets? But I also thought, you know, it seems like lots of points in the past, people thought their attention was getting worse is this really happening? You know, maybe this is just a kind of, you know, one of those things that everyone, every generation worries about. And then I had this moment when I realised I really had to look into it more. I couldn't put it off any longer. I've got a godson who I call Adam um, to protect his privacy. And when, when he was nine, he became freakishly obsessed with Elvis. I never quite understood why but he would sing suspicious minds and viva las vegas at the top of his voice and it was unbelievably cute because he didn't know this had become like a kind of cheesy cliche so he did it with this incredible sincerity i remember one day when i was tucking him in he made me tell him over and over again the story of elvis's life and one day when i was tucking him in he said to me will you take me to graceland one day where elvis lived and I said, yeah, you know, in the way you do with small children, when they ask you things you have no intention of doing. And he said, no, do you really promise? And I said, yeah, I promise. And I didn't think about it again until 10 years later when everything had gone wrong. He had dropped out of school when he was 15. And, and he seemed to just spend all his time flicking between the iPad, the laptop. And this kind of, his life just seemed to consist of this blur of WhatsApp and YouTube and porn. And it was like he was kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, you know, like nothing could gain any traction in his mind. I remember one day we were sitting on his sofa and he was looking at his devices and I was looking at mine because in that decade in which he had become a man, this fracturing had happened to so many people, it seemed to me. And I looked at him and I said, look, we can't go on like this. And I suddenly remembered this promise I'd made to him when he was nine. And I said, you know what, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what? And he he didn't even remember that I'd made this promise. I said, no, let's go to Graceland, but there's one condition. Let's go all over the South. But you have to, when we go there, leave your phone off, right? You have to leave it in the hotel. You can't, you can't be looking at your phone all the time. The point is we need to get away from this. And he said, yeah, absolutely. I promise. So a couple of weeks later, we took off, we went to New Orleans first and Remember when we arrived at the gates of Graceland? It's funny, there isn't a um, person to show you around anymore, even before COVID. What they do is they, they give you an iPad and you put in the little earbuds and the iPad guides you around. So it says, go left in this room, this happened, go right. And in every room you go into, there's a representation of that room on the iPad. But what that means, I noticed as we're walking around, is people just walk around Graceland staring at an iPad, right? They're just always staring at an iPad. In fact, the only time they seem to look away from the iPad is to take out another screen and take selfies or photos. And I'm sort of wandering around, getting increasingly kind of annoyed by this. And we get to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite um, you know, room in, the, in Graceland. It's a kind of fake jungle basically, which means it has lots of like fake plants. And there's this couple next to me, and he turned to his wife and he said to her, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And she starts swiping left and right going, wow. And I looked at them and I said, but, but sir, there's, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. You could just turn your head because we're actually in the jungle room. You don't, you don't have to look at our digital representation of it. We're, we're actually here, look. And they, of course, looked at me like I was completely deranged and sort of backed out of the room. And I turned to my godson to sort of laugh about it. And he was just in the corner looking at Snapchat because from the minute we landed, he had broken his promise. He just could not go through the world without constantly looking at these devices. And, and I got really angry with him. And, and I kind of said, you know, you're, you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out, right? You're not present with your life. And he kind of stomped off, understandably, because I was shouting. And I I wandered around Graceland on my own. And that night I found him in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying, which is across the street. And he was sitting by this swing pool that's shaped like a guitar. And they play Elvis songs in a loop. And he was just looking at his phone and he said, I know something is really wrong, but I don't know what. And I don't know how to stop. And that was when I thought, I've got to look into this, partly because of him, partly because like so much anger. I was angry at myself as much as at him, right? I could feel, I wasn't as extreme as him, but I could feel that fracturing with each year that passed, things that require deep focus that are really important to me, like reading a book where it felt more and more like running up a down escalator. So to, to understand what's going on, I traveled all over the world and interviewed the, more than 200 of the leading experts in the world about what causes attention to be healthy and what causes attention to deteriorate and I discovered loads of things that I'm I'm sure we're going to talk about.
1: Yeah and I'm sure for probably everyone listening can relate to that, that sense of knowing that their relationship with maybe their phones or technology is not quite right or you know I find you know I was reading I was reading your book as a PDF on my computer and you were talking about how hard it is to to read <laughs> on a computer and I was really noticing like how meta this is I was like getting distracted by my phone going off or checking emails like even though I was like riveted by this book even then my dis- my my focus was going elsewhere and I noticed myself and I know you talk about this in the book we kind of I, I noticed myself beating myself up about that and thinking what's wrong with me? Why can't I just focus? Why do I keep checking my emails? And I know something you say in the book is um, our collapsing ability to pay attention is not primarily a personal failing. Can you, can you talk a bit about that? How perhaps it's not, you know, our personal fault that this is happening?
0: It's so important what you're saying, Chloe, because I had exactly the same reaction. When I felt my own attention deteriorating, I would kind of say, oh God, you're weak, you're lazy, why aren't you disciplined enough? And actually what I learned is, from all the experts that I've met, is there's scientific evidence for 12 different factors that can cause attention to deteriorate. And many of them are really rapidly rising at the moment, right? So this is happening. The most important thing you know is this isn't some flaw in you. This is happening to almost everyone. And your attention didn't collapse it was stolen. It was stolen by very big and powerful forces. And when you understand that, it creates a very different kind of level of response to what we've got to do. Um, and I'm sure we'll explore that in all sorts of ways, that there's this sort of two levels at which we need to deal with this crisis. One is an individual level, there are individual things we can do to change. And the other is at a collective level. Because at the moment, it's a bit like someone is pouring itching powder over us all the time. And then the people pouring itching powder on us are going, you know, um, you might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. And it's like, you know, meditation is a very good tool. I'm in favor of it, but we need to actually stop the people who are pouring itching powder on us as well as meditating. So you've got to have this this double level. But I actually initially took that, that response that you're talking about, that there's something wrong with me. I basically thought there were two problems. I wasn't disciplined enough and the phone was sort of hacking me. So I took a very, very drastic response to this. I just announced to everyone when I got back from Memphis, okay, I'm going completely off the internet and my smartphone for three months. And I booked a, a beach ha- a corner of a beach house in a, in a little place called Provincetown in Cape Cod, which is on the East Coast. It's basically a kind of sandbar that juts into the Atlantic Ocean. And I left my phone and my laptop in Boston with my friend and I just went completely without them for three months. Um, And I learned lots of things from that experience, lots of really positive things that I've taken forward. But I also learned that the minute I got back and I got my devices back, those lessons were extremely hard to sustain. And I had to really work to integrate those changes into my life. We are being hacked and invaded. And that is not just by tech. I mean, it's one of the things that most surprised me, actually. If you look at the 12 causes that I explored with all these scientists, all of which we can deal with, Actually, I don't think tech is the biggest, actually. Uh, the, there are others that are even larger. And with te- even with tech, it, it's a more specific problem than we think. So it's really fascinating to think about this subject. I think a lot of our instincts are right and a lot of our instincts are wrong, that instinct to blame ourselves. And we need to understand this whole phenomenon in a much more nuanced and complicated way, I think, a more honest way. Mm,
1: mm. Yeah, so I think, I suppose... Social media, for example, gets blamed for a lot of things. I'm wondering to what extent do you blame social media specifically for the problems that we have with with attention and focus?
0: So it's a big factor, but it's more complicated than, than we think. And there is a solution that is not just we all need to put our phones away. So I interviewed a lot of the leading, well, a lot of the people who literally designed key aspects of the social media we now all use. In Silicon Valley, uh, people who've been at the absolute heart of the machine. And it was really kind of fascinating, but also chilling. So one of them is a guy called Tristan Harris, who is a former Google engineer, who now speaks out about what they did. And Tristan told me about this moment that really kind of haunted me. He worked on the Gmail team when they were first designing Gmail. And The goal of Gmail was to get more and more people to use Gmail and to use it far more times throughout the day because that's how they make money. We can talk about that more in a minute. And he was there one day when one of the engineers at Gmail just said, oh, I've got an idea. Why don't we make it so that whenever anyone gets an email, their phone just vibrates a little bit? So everyone said, oh, that's a good idea. A week later, Tristan was walking around San Francisco and he just starts hearing all these vibrations all around him. And he realises, oh, that's happening all over the world as a result of what we're doing. And it was this sort of quite chilling moment for him. Yeah. Um, In fact, he, he calculated shortly afterwards that as a result of that decision, there were 11 billion interruptions to people's day that were happening every day as a result of what his team had done. And there's lots of ways... In which the current social media model, which doesn't have to be the way social media works, but the current social media model is severely harming our attention. So let's just think about that one. We can talk about lots, but if you like, but the let's think about that one that Tristan was partly, you know, was part of the team that was responsible for, you're interrupted, right? So learning about the science of what happens to you when you're interrupted was really interesting to me, partly because when I went to Provincetown, and I didn't have my phone, a smartphone, and I didn't have an, a laptop that could connect to the internet. I was amazed by how quickly my attention came back. It, it wasn't a, a, a small effect, you know. I had thought, oh God, maybe I've just degenerated. My brain isn't what it used to be. But within a few weeks, um, I was able to focus like I had been, I had when I was a teenager. I was able to sit for six hours and just read a book straight through. I was amazed by how rapidly it came back. And one of the reasons—it's certainly not the only one one of the reasons is because there's something that everyone should know about. It's called, the fancy term for it is the switch cost effect. So I went to interview one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, a man named Professor Earl Miller, who's at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he explained to me, and lots of other scientists did as well, there's one really important thing you've got to understand about your brain, which is that you can only think about one thing at a time consciously, right? That's it. It's a fundamental limit of the human brain human brain hasn't changed in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change anytime soon. You can only think about one thing. But in fact, we've told ourselves that we can think about many things at the same time. The average teenager now believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time. But what Professor Miller and his colleagues have studied is what happens when you think you're following loads of things at the same time. In fact, what they discovered, they get people into labs, they get them to do it. What they discovered is you're not actually following several things at the same time. What you're doing is you're juggling very quickly between them. Now your consciousness sort of papers over it to give you a sense that you're doing it all at the same time, but you're juggling. And that comes at a really surprisingly big cost. So I'm talking to you now, right? When you were speaking a second ago, I've got my phone somewhere, I don't know where it is, but somewhere in this room. I could have just glanced at my text messages while you were doing saying what you said, right? You think, oh, it's only a second. I can still follow what Chloe's saying. In fact, what happens is if I glance at my text message, I oh, my friend Rob's messaged me. His mom's at hospital, right? That means, and then I glance back at you. I have to refocus my mind on the text, then refocus on you. That takes a really significant amount of brain power. That's called the switch cost effect. We actually know how much brain power that takes. There's been experiments. And it's a shocking amount. So, for example, Hewlett Packard, the company that make uh, printers, printers that always jam up in my experience. But anyway, um, they did a small experiment. They got their work, some of their workers and they split them into two groups. And the first group was told just just do whatever task you've got to do, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told do your task, and you're going to receive texts and emails. And they received a what they what was defined as a heavy amount of texts and emails. And then at the end of this, they tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored 10 points higher on IQ tests than the group that had been interrupted. To give you a sense of how big that is, if you or me got stoned now, if we just smoked a spliff together, our IQ would go down by five points. So it's double the effect of getting stoned. So you'd be better off sitting at your desk doing one thing at a time and smoking a fat spliff than smoke sitting at your desk being constantly interrupted by emails and texts and not smoking a split, right? That's how big this effect is. Um, and there's other experiments that, that show this. And I think we are all losing effectively that those 10 IQ points for a very large part of the day. We're, we're in this zone, 40% of office workers in the United States never get 20 minutes to just focus on one thing, right? There's just a staggering level of interruption, which is why Professor Miller said, we are living the way he put it is we're living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all this switching. And the current model for social media is designed to maximally interrupt you, right? When Tristan gets anxious because he's hearing all that buzzing, the Gmail team is celebrating. it's working. The more they interrupt people, the more they mm-hmm. look at their Gmail, the more money they make, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause it's a wonder we can, we can do anything really with all that going on. <laughs> I, I'm, I was also interested about how, you know, what's the knock on effect on our mental health of that? Cause I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, for somebody with anxiety who gets very overwhelmed because all of these things are coming at you all at once, or for somebody who, you know, beats themselves up because they've not been as productive as they want to be or, I suppose it kind of—I I see it as almost like feeding in, like a vicious cycle, feeding into stress and anxiety. The more distracted we are, you know, deadlines loom, don't get things done, and then if we can't focus, yeah, you know, yeah. I wondered what's your take on how the two kind of interplay.
0: So I think there's there's a really important question, and I think there's lots of ways in which it affects our mental health. The first it's just something very simple: as your attention deteriorates it's much harder to achieve your goals in life, right? But short-term goals, medium-term goals, long-term goals. So, you know, something as simple as you want to fill in your tax return, it's harder to do that. Um, You want to be a good mum, it's harder to do that. You want to set up a business, it's harder to do that. If you can't focus, it's very hard to achieve your goals in life. So, and the less you can achieve your goals, the less happy you are, right? For obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. I think it's partly that. I think it's partly it makes us lonelier. And there's an interesting way and and it's also that it makes us angrier. and the in a way to understand both of those, you've got to look at one of the underlying causes, which also leads us to one of the solutions. So Tristan Harris, the Google designer that I mentioned, it was a moment thinking about social media differently fell into place for me. He said to me, "You've got to ask yourself why Facebook doesn't have something specific. So when you open Facebook, Facebook will tell you loads of things, right? It'll say to you, it'll tell you, you know, if it's someone's birthday, it'll tell you if um, someone tagged you in a photo, it'll tell you what you said 10 years ago on the same day. There is no button on Facebook that says, I'd like to meet up are any of my friends nearby and also want to meet up, right? There's no button that says that. Now, everyone listening immediately will think, oh, that'd be a really useful button. We've all had moments where you think, oh, is anyone nearby who wants to meet up? Right, that would be a great thing. That would make us feel much better. Very often you're sitting there, you're lonely, you're scrolling through Facebook. That button would be a huge boost to your life. So why doesn't Facebook provide it? If you follow the trail from that question, I think you understand the answer to what you're saying. And you begin to understand the way out of this. So the reason Facebook doesn't have that button is very simple. When you open Facebook, Facebook makes money in two ways. The first way is obvious, you scroll down and you see adverts, right? And obviously advertisers pay them. Second way is more subtle. Everything you do on Facebook is scanned and sorted to build a profile of you, right? So let's say that you like uh, Kylie Minogue, uh, Donald Trump, and you say to your your mum in a private message that you've been buying nappies. Okay, Facebook's probably going to figure out that you're probably a gay man, no disrespect to other people who like Kylie. You're probably right wing, and you've probably got a baby, right? Because you're buying nappies. Building up this profile and imagine thousands of facts like that about you. It's building up this complicated profile to sell to advertisers so they can target you really precisely. Because you know, if you're making nappies, no point advertising to me. I don't have a baby, right? So you want to always be targeting your advertising. So Facebook's entire financial model is built around keep you scrolling so you see more ads and they learn more about you so they can sell you better to the advertisers, right? that is how they make money as surely as kfc makes money out of selling you fried chicken right now imagine if there was a button that said who's around and wants to meet up and you push that button and it goes oh beth Beth's just up the road i'll go we'll go for a coffee you would put facebook down right you would close the app and you go and have a coffee with beth as far as facebook's concerned that's a disaster they're losing money they want you to talk to beth exclusively through facebook that's the only way they gather more data and make more money. So the Facebook business model is partly built on encouraging loneliness, which we know causes anxiety. I can talk about that if you want. But there's an even worse effect as a result of that business model, which was not the intention of Facebook. But and by the way, this is true of all the social media companies. It was not the intention, but it ended up being the outcome. Remember that Facebook wants you to keep scrolling. That's all it wants you to do. So all of their engineers are designed to create artificial intelligence, to figure out what will keep Chloe scrolling, right? What will keep her looking at Facebook? And unfortunately, there's a quirk of human psychology. Anyone who's ever been on the motorway and seen a car crash will understand it. We will stare at frightening and negative and angering things longer than we will stare at nice things. You you stare at the car crash longer than you stare at the pretty flowers on the other side of the motorway, right? So it's probably because we evolved to be quite vigilant about risk and danger to, you know, what might threaten us. You know, you're going to want to see that more than you're going to want to see something soothing um, because then you're going to be able to protect yourself. But that has a horrendous effect on the Internet. where What it means is Facebook's algorithms start promoting things, selecting and promoting to show you things that will maximally make you angry because that will keep you scrolling. So imagine two teenagers leave a party and they get on the same bus home. Once it's on the top deck, once it's on the bottom deck. The one on the top deck says, I had a really nice time at that party. Everyone looked great and they were lovely. And the kid on the bottom deck goes, Karen looked like a right slag at Facebook's algorithm will select to show that second status update to far more people than the first update because far more people will engage with it. They'll comment on it. They'll look at it longer. They'll get into arguments over it. Constantly, we are being fed things that make us more angry and more upset through social media to keep us scrolling. Now, obviously that causes more anxiety, right? The teenagers who see the nice status update would feel good, and the teenagers who see the nasty status, status update, which is actively promoted by Facebook, and YouTube works in a similar way, it shows us things that anger us, will um, we'll keep scrolling longer. So you can see how that causes it. Now that doesn't have to happen. I can talk about how we can change that. And it's, this is very changeable. But so I think that there's all sorts of ways, and there's lots of others, but I don't want to talk for a thousand years, ways in which the, the current structure of social media is making us anxious and upset.
1: It's quite scary, I think, to think of how, you know, is Facebook going to have to go against its own financial interests in order for us to have better mental health? Because, yeah, I wonder what's going to happen and what's it going to be like in 10 years' time with the metaverse and everyone's on virtual reality and more and more angry. I think something's got to change, hasn't it?
0: You're absolutely right. Something's got to change. And there are plenty of times in the past when we've made changes like this. So to give an example... And there are personal changes we can make, and I talk about a lot of them in in my book. There's lots of things I do to protect myself at a personal level from this. For example, I don't know if you can see in the corner of my office, Chloe, there, I've got a, um, can you see that little white thing in the corner? I don't know if you can see it from this angle. No, no. I'll show it to you. So this is a, can you see it now? This is a K-safe, right? So basically the way it works is, I will demonstrate, I haven't done this before. I'll tell the the
1: listeners what you can see. It's like a clear plastic box with a, Secure lid.
0: This is my phone. <laughs> the phone goes in the box, uh-huh. you put the lid on, and you twist the top, uh, and you can set it for anything from five minutes to I think a week. And then you push this button. I won't do it now because I need my phone after this interview. You push the button and it locks your phone away for as long as you tell it to, right?
1: Wow. So wow.
0: Every single day, <laughs> I use that for four hours a day to just get clear mental space. And on the phone, I have an app called Freedom that blocks my ability to access Twitter, Facebook, uh, or Instagram. I just can't look at them. So once a week, I turn them off and I look at them. And I've got an assistant that updates things, but uh, a bit more than that. But I never look at them. I, you know, I only look at them once a week, and I think I give myself about 15 minutes. If it goes to half an hour, then I, you know, get my boyfriend to tase me. So there's things we can do to protect ourselves at a personal level. But you're absolutely right. Uh, we need to take it on a much higher level one of my one of the people one of the people i most in, admire who i interviewed for the book is another former google engineer called james williams who who really spoke out and he said he pointed out you know even the people who live in who are creating the this world don't like it he once spoke at a tech conference in palo alto of senior silicon valley uh, the people who are basically designing the world that we all use and he said to all of them could you put up your hand if you want to live in the world that we're creating? And nobody put up their hand, right? But he said to me, what I had done in Provincetown, this kind of radical break, the mistake you've made is, he said, it's fine to do that and do all these things to protect yourself, it's good. But he said, thinking that that is the ultimate long-term solution is a bit like thinking the solution to air pollution is to wear a gas mask, right? Right. I mean, a gas mask will help. If I lived in Beijing, I would wear a gas mask, right? Places with high air pollution. I mean, to be honest, there's a case for wearing them in London. It's so bad, but that's not the solution. Everyone can see it's not a solution to air pollution. You need to go to the source of the pollution, right? Uh, Protect yourself by all means, but also solve the problem. And I think there's analogies that the, the it can seem like a very big thing to do that with social media, but actually. There's a very clear solution. I would I would give a kind of historical analogy, which lots of kind of your older listeners will, will remember. So in the 70s, it was discovered that, uh, so lead, it was very common to use lead in paint and petrol. And then it was just, so everyone was breathing in lead. Anyone lived in a city. And it turned out, it was scientifically shown That lead really damages your ability to focus and pay attention. It's why there was a real explosion of children with attention and behaviour problems at that time. And so we did a very obvious thing. We banned lead in petrol and we banned lead in paint. Now, you'll notice I'm in a room that's been painted. You're in a room that's been painted, right? We still paint our houses. We just don't paint our homes with lead. Outside my window, I can see up there, there are cars driving past, right? We still have petrol. We just don't have leaded petrol. In a similar way, we can, at the moment... We have a form of social media that is maximally designed to hack and invade your attention. That's the point of it. That's not some conspiracy theory. That's what they say. Sean Parker, the one of the earliest investors in Facebook, key figure in its history, said our goal from the start was to take as much of your attention as possible. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids. That's what he said, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not Facebook's critics. That's people at the heart of Facebook from the start, but there are solutions to this. And I think um, this is really important for our children. And obviously a big part of my book is about kids and the many things that are invading our children's attention. This is only uh, one of the 12 factors, but the analogy with lead paint is very clear, right? At the moment, there's this model that's about invading our attention, but there's lots of other ways Facebook and other social media companies could work. So what a lot of the people who've been at the heart of this machinery said is, The the bigger solution is we should ban that business model, right? Just like we've banned lead paint, we should say you are not allowed to surveil and track people in order to learn about how to hack their attention and then sell that to the highest bidder. Just ban it, right? It's a terrible thing. It's terrible for our attention. It's terrible for our kids' mental health. It's terrible for politics. We're all getting angrier and angrier. People don't need me to tell them much about that. They've watched the news the last five years. Just ban it. Don't allow it. And I remember saying to them then, well, hang on, what happens? Okay, let's imagine we do that. And the next day I open Facebook, will it just say, sorry, we've shut down? They said, of course not. There are other business models. There are two that um, if we move to, they can begin to restore people's attention. And they're models that everyone watching knows very well uh, and will have some experience of. So one is subscription, right? We might pay 50p a month to be on Facebook. Uh, so subscription is one model or well, the other model is everyone watching it's somewhere very close to a sewage sewer pipes that we all own together. Right. So we used to not have sewers. And what happened? You know, we had, you know, feces in the street. We got cholera. So we all together paid for the sewers and we all own those sewers together because we all have an interest in not going back to the days without sewers, right? It may be that just like we own the sewage pipes, we also want to own the information pipes because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention, for our politics. So those are different models. The reason why they're so important is, at the moment, the business model is, invade Chloe's attention, sell it. But once they move to this other business model, The incentives are completely different. Then it becomes at the moment you're not the customer. The advertiser is the customer. You're the product they sell to the customer, right? Suddenly you become the customer. So they're no longer asking how do we sell Chloe to someone else. They're asking what does Chloe want? Now at that point the button that says which of my friends are around and want to meet up stops being a threat to Facebook and becomes an absolute asset. Oh, Chloe wants to meet up with her friends. Chloe wants to be less anxious. Chloe wants to have a good attention span. Great. Let's put all our engineering power to figuring out how we give Chloe those things. So instead of hacking your attention, it it becomes a machinery over time to heal your attention. And they'll discover all sorts of ways to do that. Now, that's totally technologically possible. Just they don't have the incentives to do it right now. So we've got to make them do it that's one of the 12 big changes um if you look at all these different causes that are happening to us and as i stress and this really surprised me this actually isn't the biggest thing screwing with our ability to focus and pay attention but but yeah so that it doesn't have to be this way it's really important people to understand that
1: Now, this episode of the Karma You podcast is sponsored by my five-day anxiety challenge. Now, this anxiety challenge is for you if you are a world-class overthinker and you find it hard to switch off at the end of the day. It's for you if your mind automatically goes to the worst-case scenario whenever you're doing something new or different, if you struggle with a voice in your head that criticises your every move, if you find it hard to be present because you're busy worrying and second-guessing yourself, or if you wake up at 5am with a racing heart, adrenaline pumping and a sense of dread in your stomach about the day ahead. In this five-day challenge, I give you a daily exercise that will help you to tune in to a calmer version of yourself there's a hypnotherapy session in there to help you to feel calmer instantly I'm sharing my favorite tool for releasing stress and tension from the body and lots more plus you get a special invite to invite your friends to do the challenge for free because sharing is caring and group support is invaluable you can join the anxiety challenge today it's £4.99 to join you get to keep it forever and do it as many times as you want you can head over to karma com forward slash anxiety challenge all one word so that's karma you.com forward slash anxiety challenge all one word I hope you like it mm-hmm. so so can you can you say a bit about what is the biggest thing that is screwing with our attention
0: so there's a debate about this and um there's a few that I think are contenders to be ahead of um Tech. One is stress. We can talk about that. But I'll just talk about one of the other ones where there's been a really drastic change in our lifetimes and particularly in the last century, which is sleep. Mm. Only 15% of people in our culture wake up feeling refreshed. And when I was in Provincetown and I went away for those three months, I would go to sleep when it got dark and I woke up when it was sunny, which I don't think I've done since I was a child. I definitely haven't done since I was a child. And a young child, because I didn't even do that when I was at school. And I remember about a month into it, waking up one day and walking into the kitchen and standing in front of the coffee machine and thinking, I've got this really weird feeling. What is this? And suddenly I realised I had woken up and I wasn't tired. And I had never, and I was doing that, it started happening to me every day. And I realised actually what my body wants is to sleep for eight and a half hours Night, which seems seems to me now like an insanely luxurious amount of time. But so I went and interviewed the, the leading experts in the world, many of them about sleep, and it was quite shocking. So there was a, there's a man called Dr. Charles Seisler at Harvard Medical School, who is an amazing man and has like advised the Boston Red Sox and the U.S. Secret Service. He's like the you know the head guy on this stuff. Um, who's made a series of really big breakthroughs on this. In 1981, he was working in a lab in Boston and he had to keep people awake to study something else not not he wasn't actually looking at sleep but part of the experiment was he had to keep people awake and so we had to do like you know memory and attention tests just to keep them going so he would do things like show them a card with a car, picture of a car on it and take the card away and say what color was the car i just showed you things like that and what struck him was you didn't have to keep people awake that long before their attention just began to absolutely collapse. Things that when you're refreshed would take a fraction of a second. When you've been awake for 19 hours can take as long as 12 seconds. 19 hours doesn't seem that much. He discovered if you're awake for 19 hours, your attention is as impaired as if you were drunk. And if you go for six hours a night for just 10 days, you get to the same level, right? Your attention is as bad as if you were drunk. And he wanted to understand, well, why is that? And there's lots of reasons we can talk about. But there was this experiment he did I remember talking to him about it next, near, his, near where it happened in, in Harvard, that really chilled me and I really identified with. So he did this experiment where he put, put together two bits of technology. There's basically a kind of technology that can scan your eyes and see what you're looking at. And there's obviously a technology that can scan your brain and see what's happening in there. So it's to figure out what, what's happening in people's brains when they look at something. And they got people who were tired, not extreme awake for two days, nothing like that, but people who have been awake a while. And put them into this machine. And what they discovered is when you're tired, you can appear to be awake. You're looking around you, you're speaking, and yet significant parts of your brain have literally gone to sleep, right? You are literally not able to process what you're looking at and what you're saying properly. This is called local sleep because it's local to one part of the brain, right? And this causes what he called attentional blinks, where your attention just starts to go, right? Now that has massively increased. We sleep now on average an hour less than people slept in 1941. Children sleep 80 minutes less than they did a century ago. And this is particularly catastrophic for kids because in adults, we manifest uh, tiredness as you know being sleepy, drowsy. In children, they will usually manifest sleepiness as mania and irritability. I mean, we get irritable a bit too, but we don't tend not to run around madly when we're, when we're exhausted. So, uh, and Dr. Seisler said to me, i mean, I can say a load of things about sleep. It's such a fascinating subject. I go into a lot in the book, but Dr. Seisler said to me, even if nothing else had changed, this alone would be causing a huge crisis in our ability to focus and pay attention.
1: Yeah. And I suppose you mentioned before stress and how that's another driver of us not being able to focus and stress and sleep are so linked together. When you're stressed, you can't sleep. And when you can't sleep, it makes you stressed. And yeah, you can see it all kind of feeding into, into each other.
0: Totally. They're like, they're like uh, conjoined twins. And, and the stuff about stress, I thought was so interesting. I learned a lot about this from a woman called Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who's now the Surgeon General of California, the senior medical official in the whole state. And Nadine is an amazing person. You know, when she was a little girl, she grew up in Palo Alto. Um, she used to come home, she'd leave school really frightened. When she was walking home, she'd think, God, am I going to find happy mom or, or scary mom? Because Nadine's mother was an amazing woman, but she, she had paranoid schizophrenia. Nadine never knew what, what was going to be there when she walked through the door. But Nadine coped by becoming a sort of grade A student, you know, and she, she went to Harvard Medical School. She, she did this incredible work. And when she had finished, she wanted to work, she wanted to help people who were less advantaged than her, people who had been like she was when she was younger. So she went to work in Bayview, which is a poor part of San Francisco, uh, where people are really scared. There's a lot of violence. In fact, on her first day, she saw, second day, sorry, she came across a 17-year-old boy who'd been shot and had to try to help him. And she started to work with kids who were really traumatised. Um, so she took over the Medical Centre for Young People in Bayview. And she noticed something that really struck her, which is a staggering number of these kids were being diagnosed with attention problems vastly more than in any wealthy area. And she was like, what's going on here? What, what's happening? What's happening? she starts to research it. She called in lots of the people who've been diagnosed with attention problems. And there's, she called in a mother and a son. I'll call him Robert. That's obviously not his real name. She didn't tell it to me to protect his medical confidentiality. So mother and a son, and he'd been diagnosed with attention problems and drugged for it for a few years. And he was still having a lot of attention problems and he hated the drug he was on. And so Nadine starts talking to the mother and the son. And she's trying to figure out, well, when did the When did the attention problems begin? And it took a while for them to tell her, but they did tell her. And what happened was Robert's mother had come home one day and found her boyfriend sexually abusing Robert in the shower when he was 12. And she had herself been sexually abused. She was really ashamed of this. She didn't go to the police. She sent Robert to go and live with his dad and stayed with the boyfriend. But Robert would obviously come home at weekends. So you can imagine he was terrified, right? And Nadine explained to him, this is obviously a very extreme situation, but Nadine explained to me what what happens in that situation. So obviously Robert was under staggeringly extreme stress, but what happens, the way she explained it to me is, and this is true for much milder forms of stress, imagine tomorrow you were attacked by a bear, right? Not very likely, we live in Britain, but maybe one would escape from the zoo, right? You're attacked from a bear, by a bear. In the weeks and months afterwards, your attention begins to flip. So you your attention will flip to automatically to scanning the horizon for dangers, for risks, right? You're scanning the horizon unconsciously for, is there another bear out there, right? Now imagine you were attacked by a bear again. You would go into a state called hypervigilance, where you are, you know, you are constantly scanning the horizon for risks, for dangers. You're going to find it much harder to just sit and think about Robert sitting in a math class, right? I mean, it's going to be very hard for him to sit there thinking about these sums because his attention has flipped to, I'm in real danger, I'm threatened in scanning. His whole body is primed to scan and detect for risks, right? Nadine did research with all the kids at Bayview. What she discovered is if you had experienced four categories of childhood trauma, you were 32.6 times more likely to have been diagnosed with attention problems than the people who hadn't had any childhood trauma. And this fits with a much wider body of evidence that shows basically stress produces vigilance, which destroys your focus, your attention actually ruins your ability to sleep for obvious reasons. So the way Nadine responded to Robert and his mother, and never forget how she put it, she said, you have to scale the solution to the problems that people are having. Really stay with me. You have to scale the solutions to the problems that people are having. So in this case, she persuaded the mother to go to the police to get a restraining order against the abuser. She gave the mother and son loads of... Of psychological support, particularly interestingly for the mother as much as the son, because she needed to overcome her shame in order to be able to bond with her child. They gave them yoga so they could reconnect with their bodies, which they'd become very disconnected from, lots of help with their eating. It was all about radically lowering the stress levels for them, the amount of stress hormones their bodies were producing. Which meant that Robert's attention was beginning to heal. Now, there are all sorts of ways in which we can deal with stress, and I, I talk about lots of book, but again, at a personal level and at a bigger level. But yeah, the, the, it, the amount of stress we are experiencing, I mean, I think we've all noticed this during the pandemic as well, shatters stress, shatters attention, right? It shatters focus because it flips all your attention systems. Onto detecting risk and danger, and away from deeper forms of focus. You can focus. Uh, There's a um, child psychologist in Adelaide in Australia, Dr. John Giardini, who said to me, "You know, when you're safe, deep focus is a good strategy. Right? Sitting down and reading a book is a good thing to do when you're safe. If you're in danger, deep focus is a really stupid thing to do. Right? If, if you're if you're at risk of being hurt." Just saying, oh, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to screen all that out and sit and do some deep form of focus would actually be quite foolish. You need to deal with the danger. But the problem is either because of financial insecurity or work pressures or a whole range of things, lots of us are living in that state of chronic stress, which is important for people to understand if they can't focus and you're really stressed, that's not your fault, right? Again, we're encouraged to blame ourselves, but also we have to like Nadine says, scale the solutions to the problems people are having. We can deal with that stress, and I talk about all sorts of ways we we can do that.
1: So so fascinating. What about for you personally? How do you manage stress? How do you keep your focus? And yeah, so I do lots of things,
0: but I just want to slightly caveat before I answer that, which is mm. I'm conscious. So I'm a very lucky person in that, you know, I'm from a working class family. My dad was a bus driver, my grandmother who raised me clean toilets. But I was lucky in that I wrote some books that people bought. So I've got money, right? So I could change my life in all sorts of ways. And I'm aware that when when I describe some of the things that I do, it can feel a bit like going up to a homeless person in the street and saying, mate, do you know what would make you feel much better? It'd be if you went into the Ritz over there and you had a really nice dinner, you'd feel much better if you did that. And entirely justifiably, the homeless person would go, fuck you. I can't do that. They won't let me into the Ritz. Right. And a similar way it's one of the reasons why I think we have to talk, I, I know I said this before, but we have to talk about this at two levels, the personal changes. And there are lots of personal changes that lots of people can make and that I have made, but also marry that to the bigger changes that will make it possible for far more people to be free to make those changes. And I can talk about what some of those bigger changes are and places that have done them and how it made it possible for people to make changes that freed up their attention. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's been a lot of things. Firstly, changing the way I think about my own distraction, you know, because before, like we said, I would go into this self-reproach, which actually only make it worse, right? You, you, You can't chide yourself into focusing on things. It's not, it doesn't, in fact, that only makes you feel less able to focus. So there's a really interesting thing I learned about that now I try to do that really helps. So instead of doing that, that sort of blame, 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 I learned a lot about a psychological phenomenon that is really important for attention. It's in fact the deepest form of attention humans can give. It's called, They're called flow states. So a flow state, a lot of people will have heard of this and everyone will have experienced one even if they don't know the name. A flow state is when you're doing something you care about and you really get into it. And when you get into it, you're just focusing so deeply it doesn't feel like you're focusing at all. And time falls away and your sense of yourself falls away. And you're just in it. The way one rock climber put it is: if you're, if you get into a flow state when you're cl- rock climbing, it's like you have become the rock you're climbing, right? So for me, it would be writing. For some people, it'd be you know playing the guitar, playing with their kids, whatever it might be, right? Most people will have had a flow state of some kind. Eighty-five percent of people have experienced it. And flow states are important because they are a gusher of attention that exists in all of us. Where if you drill right, you can pay attention in a way that doesn't feel like, oh, it's not like studying for an exam where it's like, oh, I've got to memorize this. You know, you've got, you're forcing yourself to pay attention. It's an effortless form of attention. So I went to Claremont in California to interview the uh, uh, amazing man named Professor Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who is the man who first coined the phrase flow states and spent almost 50 years discovering them. He sadly he actually just died a few weeks ago, which is a real, a real loss. And he taught me, and his research shows, there are three really important factors for getting into flow. So one is you have to choose one clear goal, right? You can't be trying to do lots of things at the same time, then you'll never get into flow if you're doing that. Secondly, you've got to choose something that is meaningful to you. So if I tried to, I don't know, if I tried to get into flow by climbing a rock, it definitely, well, I would fall and die, but the, or, you know, if I tried to do it by playing the guitar, it would be awful. It would sound like a cat screaming. It's got to be something that is really meaningful to you. You can't flow into something that isn't meaningful. And thirdly, you, ideally you should choose something that's at the edge of your ability. So just at the edge of your comfort zone. So if you're a rock climber, a medium ability rock climber, You don't want to try and climb over a garden wall. That's not going to get you into flow. But equally, you don't want to try and climb Mount Kilimanjaro because that's just going to be so overwhelming you won't get into flow. What you want to do is choose something to climb that is slightly higher and harder than the last thing you tried to climb. So, if you can combine those three things a clear goal, a meaningful goal, and something at the edge of your abilities you maximize your chances of getting into flow. There's no guarantee. You maximize your chances and then attention comes much more effortlessly. So, for me, one of the things I do is is when I can't focus, is not go, Oh, you idiot, why aren't you good enough? It's like, Okay, pull back, pull back. How do you find those three factors? Right? Because very often when I can't focus, it's either because I've ceased to find the thing that I'm doing meaningful. And then you have to go, Okay, what's the meaning? Why does this matter? Why am I doing this? Or I'm doing something that's too easy. Or I'm doing something that's too hard, right? And you've got to try and get into that sweet spot to get the flow state going. Now, again, I stress, I'm very lucky I've got a job where I can recalibrate in that way. My family don't have jobs like that, right? So I, I understand that that's, um, that's not something everyone can do. And I want to, uh, we need to change the culture so that more people can do these things. And I talk about places I went to that have done that. I can talk about that a bit if you like. But yeah, the, so that's one of the, one of many changes that I go through in the book that I've made, personally.
1: Thank you so much for making that distinction between the I suppose people who are more privileged who may have the time to meditate or the time to have an early night versus you know there has there have to be structural changes things that are at a higher level that are helping us to be less stressed as a culture what what are some of those sort of more high level things then that would make a difference in your opinion? You're
0: so right look and I'm constantly, constantly conscious of this because of my family. For example, my sister is a psychiatric nurse, right? Struggling single mom who's a psychiatric nurse, and the idea of me going to her, you know, uh, you want to sleep more, you get 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 an extra two hours sleep a night, and uh, what you need to do is change the way you eat, and you need to uh, you need to cut out. I mean she would slap me around the face, right? Totally justifiably. She can't do that, right? She literally can't do that. So I want to talk about changes that make it would make it possible for my sister and other people to begin to make some of these changes. So in France in 2018, they, were had, they were had a big debate because they were having a big crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. The French government, under pressure from trade unions, got a guy called Bruno Metling, who was the head of their big telecoms company, Orange, to investigate this, look into why is this happening? And he discovered that one of the key factors was that 35% of French people felt they could never unplug from their work email and their texts, because their boss could message them at any time, of day or night, and if they didn't get back, they could be penalised, right? So they were never unplugging. You could never have an hour with your kids without having a bit of your brain being like, shit, have I just done an email? What's happening? What's happening? You know, I remember when, when we were kids, I think you're a bit younger than me, but when we were kids, you know, the only people who were on call were doctors and the prime minister. Now half the economy is on call, right? That has the effect of just exhausting and burning people out. So what Bruno Metling recommended and the French government introduced was something very simple. It's called the right to disconnect. Just means you have a legal right to have your work hours defined and written down, and you have a legal right when your work hours are over, to not look at your email or your, your phone. And in fact, companies that have, and so I went to Paris and spoke to lots of people about this, and companies that try to get people, so for example, rent kill was fined 70,000 euros because they emailed, they, they told off one of their workers for not checking his email out of work hours, right? So you can see how that's a social change, not some sort of fancy abstract one. France is not, you know, a science fiction utopia exists, it's there. You can see how that change frees people. There's no point saying to people, you know, you want to spend less time switching between devices if they have to switch between devices to keep a job, right? Now, that right to disconnect is something we can all fight for and demand, right? Um, We're all the beneficiaries of big changes that people fought for and demanded in the past. That's a very practical thing that we could do, would massively improve our ability to focus and pay attention and our mental health that would reduce our anxiety you can see across the board how that would really help people now that's one of a few big changes i think we need to have big changes to childhood and the way we write, you know there's there's been a huge transformation of childhood that's damaging children's ability to focus and pay attention there's a Across the board, there's big changes we need to make that would restore our kids' ability to focus and our ability to focus. But it requires us to understand what's happening to us. And it comes back to understanding it's not that your attention collapsed, your attention was stolen from you by these forces. And together we can get our brains back, right? I hope
1: so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely, we can. And you know, if, if you feel pessimistic about that, and I totally understand there's moments when I do. I think a lot about my grandmothers, right? I'm 42. My grandmothers were 42 years old in 1962. One of them was a working class Scottish woman living in a tenement. And the other one was a Swiss woman living in a wooden farmhouse on a mountain. And I knew my grandmothers very well. And I love both of them. So in 1962, when they were the age I am now, they were not allowed to have bank accounts because they were married women. The husbands were allowed to have bank accounts. They weren't. My Swiss grandmother wasn't allowed to vote. They had both left school when they were 13, even though the men in their family stayed on at school because nobody gave a shit about women in their minds. It was legal for their husbands to rape them. In practice, it was legal for their husbands to beat them because the police never did anything about domestic violence. In the entire world, there were no countries or companies run by women. Men controlled everything, right? Every institution of power in the society was controlled, in the world, was controlled by men and had been for thousands of years. And then I think about my niece, who's 17. My Swiss grandmother loved to draw and paint, but she was told, forget that, you're going to be married, have children, shut up, right? Women don't get to do that. My niece loves to draw, and when she does that, we say, oh, great, you should go to art school, right? Amazing. Now there's still a long way to go and I know it's very annoying for men to mansplain this and the the women listening don't need me to say this but we've still got a long way to go but my niece's life is unrecognisable, would have been unrecognisable to my grandmothers in 1962, unthinkable and unrecognisable and even the most crazed sexist, would not suggest we should go back to 1962 and women shouldn't be allowed to have bank accounts and it should be legal for women to be raped by their husbands and women shouldn't be allowed to vote. I mean, it would be unthinkable, right? Why did that change happen? It didn't happen because men one day woke up and said, let's be nice to women, right? It happened because huge numbers of heroic women banded together and said, we're not putting up with this shit anymore. And some sympathetic men joined them, but they banded together. They fought and they fought and they fought and they achieved incredible progress. And your life and everyone listening to this, their life is immeasurably better because those women fought and, and because women continue to fight. And in the same way, you know, just like the we needed a feminist movement, a women's movement to reclaim women's bodies, I think we need a kind of attention movement to reclaim women's minds, to reclaim women and men's minds, right? We need to take back our own minds from these forces that are taking them from us and and if it's daunting to go oh god we're up against these big forces you know big tech all sorts of forces that's absolutely true those things are not a tenth as powerful as men were in 1962 right men controlled literally everything in 1962 right and those forces could be challenged a lot of these factors affecting our attention are very recent you know, James Williams the attention expert I mentioned before said to me once, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before somebody thought to put a handle on it. And the the internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? We can absolutely change how these things work. We don't have to accept that we live in an environment that is constantly invading our attention Pouring itching powder on it, invading our children's ability to focus and pay attention. We don't have to accept that we have a school system that ruins our children's ability to pay attention. There's all sorts of factors. Obviously, we've touched on a few, but there's so many of these factors that we can deal with. And I am optimistic. I mean, you said before you mentioned the metaverse and the big changes that are coming. We are in a race, right? To, the ones, to one side, you've got increasingly invasive technologies. That will uh, if we let them, will hack our attention more and more. What we have to have on the other side is a movement of ordinary people fighting back and saying, "No, no, you don't get to do this right, and we need to stop demanding you know tiny little tweaks, just tiny little tweaks. We are not medieval peasants living at the court of Mark Zuckerberg, you know begging for crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies. We own our minds, right? We need to stop this invasion of our minds from happening by protecting ourselves at a personal level and by taking on these big forces.
1: I feel encouraged and inspired and more <laughs> optimistic. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for everything you shared. Thank you for writing this oh, book. It's absolutely brilliant. And oh, thanks, Chloe. So, yeah, just... The amount of research that you've done to, to write this book, I'm just blown away by. So oh, yeah, thanks, Chloe.
0: It was fun to do it. But thanks so much. I meant to say, um, or I'll get tased by my publishers, uh, if you want any more information about the book, I meant to read something out, I can't see it. If you want any more information about the book, you can go to www.stolenfocusbook.com uh, where you can find out where to get the audiobook, the ebook, or the physical book, uh, which you can also get in all good bookshops. Um, I always think that's a bit weird. Go, we can get it in a shit bookshop as well if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> and on the website, you can find out what a big range of people from Hillary Clinton to Naomi Klein to Stephen Fry have said about the book um they were all nice about it otherwise we wouldn't have put it on the website uh and um and you can also listen on the website to audio of um loads of the experts that we've talked about and really interesting things that they said you can listen to that for free brilliant
1: hooray. and it's out on the 6th of january in the uk at yes. least is that yes. right brilliant.
0: yeah brilliant hooray great hooray enjoys this chloe thank you so much
1: thank you hooray you have been listening to the Karma You podcast with me, Chloe Brotheridge. Don't forget you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one-on-one sessions.